You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. If you're a frequent listener, I want to let you know about listener support for All Things Video. I often joke that doing this podcast is my favorite way I lose money every month. There's a lot of time and hard work that goes into producing each episode and hiring a professional editor to make them sound great. It really is a labor of love, so I'm happy to do it, but we'd really appreciate your contributions to help improve future episodes. If you'd like to make a small monthly donation, please visit anchor.fm slash all dash things dash video slash support. And we'll include that link in the show notes. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Karen Spencer, SVP Partnerships at Whaler. Karen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So let's start. Um, I wanted to kind of understand how you began your career in media and entertainment. I have had a lot of twists and turns in uh, my career. It really all began when I was a theater major in college, and I was uh, born and raised in Wilmington, North Carolina. So that is a film town, and I worked on films growing up as an extra and um, was really interested in getting involved somehow in the entertainment world in New York and LA and were your parents in the business or you just as a kid you had this fascination with movies they weren't um, in the business I think two things made me interested in entertainment Um, first of all when commercials for movies would come on TV, they would say, this movie is out in New York and LA on this date and everywhere else at a later date. And I think I was like 10 and I asked my mom, like, what is that about? And she said, oh, because New York and LA are like the most important cities in America. So they get movies first. And I asked her, why aren't we living in the most important (laughs) cities in America? It didn't make sense to me. Uh So from then on, Um, My little brain just computed, like, I need to live in either New York or L.A. because that's where things are going on. And then the more and more I uh, learned about acting, I realized that if you're an actor, you never really have the same day. You, You don't repeat a day in your career. Every day is different. And so I decided that I would be an actor because it seemed really exciting. And I was in college in theater and... I asked my my theater teacher why I was cast in the chorus instead of as the leading lady, and he told me that I was not pretty enough to be a leading lady. Oh, jeez. Um, wow. So God bless him, because he really put me on a different path, and I switched my major to photography and started getting really involved in all things behind the camera. So from there, I went and uh, when I graduated uh, from photography school in Maine, I moved to New York and I got a job at um, the front desk of World Gym on Mercer. And four days into that job, David LaChapelle, who was kind of like the biggest photographer at the time, he had the contract um, for all of the Rolling Stone covers that year, walked into the gym and gave me his membership number. And I was speechless. And he was kind of like, what's what's wrong with you? And I said, <laughs> um, I just got out of photography school. I studied you. You and I both went to the North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, I'm just so happy to meet you. And he said, why don't you come work for me? Wow. Just so, like that, huh? Yeah. But, so it sounds like a sort of quick and easy route, but it uh, turns out I was his seventh assistant 
second, uh, not second, seventh. And then it was, in fact, the second assistant's job to be the celebrity wrangler on set. And then they were sick one day, and so Madonna was coming, and it was my turn up at bat to uh, replace number two and be Madonna's caretaker for the day. And he said at the end of the day, that's what you're going to do from now on. You'll be the celebrity wrangler because you didn't get freaked out. And um, not everybody can do that or something. So most other people were starstruck working with yeah. celebrities. Yeah. yeah. So it was then that I realized maybe it wasn't that I wanted to be an actor, but that I wanted to work with actors and entertainers. So uh, I was I did that for about a year, and then I came to L.A., where everyone sort of said uh, I should come, and that would be the next natural step. I worked as a talent agent assistant for a few years, and then um, I became a talent agent myself. And I really thought that meant I would be having these like long, luxurious lunches with directors, and they would ask me for my opinion on who they should cast in their movies, and we would work on it together. And of course, it wasn't like that at all, especially because I wasn't working at one of the big agencies. I was working at a smaller agency, and it was really just um, begging for auditions and then begging for feedback because actors always want feedback, and then you can't really get it if they didn't get the job. And it's just a vicious cycle. And my heart always goes out to actors because they're in such a position in that audition cycle when they don't have a lot of control or power, um, which I think is why a lot of them transition into becoming producers so they can start to be decision makers instead of just being expected to show up and hit their marks. Uh, So being an agent for me was really administrative and not creative. And so I said to a manager who I shared clients with, I um, am 24, I have an assistant, I'm a talent agent, I I kind of have gotten everything that I worked for, but I'm not happy. And she said, you should meet my client, Ashton Kutcher. He is looking to build a production company, and I think you two would hit it off. I think I had, I want to say 12 interviews with Ashton and other people on Ashton's team. Wow, why so many? It felt like I was on American Idol. They would call me and say, like, well, it's you and 30 people. And then they would call me and say, you made it to the next round. It's you and 10 people. And, you know, they were taking this uh, position very seriously. And it was the person who was going to be spending every minute with Ashton. And so I guess he wanted to make sure that um, he would really get along with that person. So eventually I got hired. And that was really a huge moment for me and I didn't I didn't know why then I really thought it was setting me up to become a film and tv producer and I did um, some of that work with him produced a couple of films and worked on all of the tv shows that he was producing at the time uh, Punked and Beauty and the Geek and Adventures in Hollywood and a number of other um, shows that got one or two seasons So I learned so much about producing, but really, I think the two things now, looking back, that were major moments um, in that time for me uh, was, number one, he said, there's this thing called Twitter, and I want to be the first person to reach a million followers on that platform. And why Um, did he have that goal? What, What about Twitter stuck out to him? It's so important. He wanted to demonstrate that a single voice on the internet could have the same effect as a giant company. And so the idea behind the race to a million was to identify a big company that had roughly the same amount of followers that he did at the time and challenge them to a race. And he really wanted it to be a moment um, for individuality and, um, and the power of 
a community that rallied around one person rather than an organization. So we identified that CNN was actually, I think when the race started, I want to say they were both about at 750,000. So he issued a challenge to CNN. And did you talk to CNN about this beforehand or just kind of publicly throw down the gauntlet? There was no talking to CNN beforehand, but there was some outreach made in the process to Ted Turner. And there was this whole concept that Ashton had that um, he wanted to ding-dong ditch Ted Turner if he won, which I guess is like, I don't know, you ring somebody's doorbell and they answer it and you run away. <laughs> he wanted to like do something, you know, very kind of um, stunty of him uh-huh, because that's really sure. where his mind went oftentimes. So... We were trying to figure out where Ted Turner lived, and we heard from Ted Turner's people, like, first of all, he's not that involved in CNN anymore, and second of all, if you ever did expose where Ted Turner lives or do anything like that... You're in big trouble. Yeah, so (laughs) we were warned to stay away. And so what we did in the end was... um, This was quite bizarre, but we went to Atlanta and went into the CNN building. There's a hotel on the top few floors of that building. Um, So we got a hotel room and, you know, at this point he's like in not disguise, not full costume, but he's obviously trying to not be recognized as we were setting this up. And uh, so we get a hotel room and then... I hope they fixed this by now. This was many years ago, so I'm sure it's fine now because I was actually a little worried about the security level. But from the hotel room, we got access onto the roof of the building. You could just like literally walk through the roof door. And so when he won and when we hit a million, we had these big banners that said at A plus K and we broke onto the roof and draped them over the building. I had written down the number of our lawyer on my arm because (laughs) I was really sure that we were going to get arrested um, uh-huh. and we were on the roof and the helicopters started um, flying overhead the CNN helicopters and there were spotlights but of course in my mind I was like this is the cops they're coming to get us they're going to drop onto the roof and arrest us but really CNN just was covering it as a news item and I think they were thrilled that they That's were great. part I of mean it. honestly it's great publicity for them as well I'm sure it helped yeah. uh, boost their follower count yeah, yeah. so that so- was really fun and then Oprah invited Ashton on um, to teach her about Twitter and that for me was a moment of like oh my gosh, this is so immediate. We did this thing and he's communicating with a million people now and Oprah's interested and it just felt like an immediate gratification versus working on a film for a year and a half. So I started to shift a lot of my attentions to social. And why did Ashton initially embrace Twitter? What about the platform spoke to him? He's a time traveler. His brain is always five or 10 years ahead of where we are in the current moment. So he's just always somebody who is an early adopter and really interested in tech before uh, there was a there wasn't at that time a big connection between Hollywood and tech like I feel like there's a much stronger one now but he was really interested in going to San Francisco and meeting with founders and learning about um, startups and businesses that he could be involved in and it was actually the Twitter campaign that I think sparked a confirmation for him that he should never again be involved in a startup that he's not an investor in because he, you know, MIT did a study a few years later on what the tipping point for Twitter was and they identified Ashton's campaign as the tipping point that really pushed it into the mainstream consciousness. Um, But he um, wasn't uh, compensated in any way for that. So after that, he became really um, heavy into investing in startups. Yeah. And what were some of the growth strategies that you and, and his team employed at the time to help accelerate his Twitter growth? Well, this is really one of the things that 
provided me with a foundation of understanding the difference between digital creators and celebrities and the now sort of blurry middle ground between the two. When you're a celebrity and you have this natural fan base that's been created through television or film and you first make an appearance on social, you will be followed because you are famous and you don't actually need to have a lot of knowledge of the different social platforms and best practices and things like brands spend all this time studying how they can get any traction and get any followers. But when you're famous, it's remarkable how you could just, you know, tweet out one word And especially back then when people were really interested in um, hearing directly from a celebrity, uh, which was really the first time that there wasn't that filter between a publicist and tabloids and media. It was the first time that we were all hearing directly from celebrities. And he was known at that time as being somebody who was really involved in the digital space. So for him, it was relatively simple because we leveraged his fame and he would Ustream, you know, he would get on. And, and live stream a conversation with his fans and followers and kind of talk to them about whatever had happened um, that day. And they were so engaged and really interested in what he had to say. I think we know now, especially that was like, what, 2009, I think. So we're 11 years after that. And we know now that a lot of celebrities initially gained many followers because of their fame. But then those followers are either dormant and not incredibly engaged on platforms at all, or they're not that engaged with celebrities. And and celebrities actually have to work now. They have to follow those best practices and think through a lens of innovation and make sure that the content that they're putting out is of value instead of just um, fluff like it was in the beginning. Yeah, let's talk more about that because we've seen in the last, call it one or two years, this wave of traditional celebrities embracing social and you have some you know success stories like the rock will smith uh, jack black right who have turned to instagram youtube specifically as a way of building that direct connection with their audience and you know there have been some some less successful attempts as well what is your take on the difference between celebrity and influence and How do celebrities find success as they embrace social media? I think Will Smith is a really great example of somebody who turned his attention towards social and really wanting to succeed on every social platform in a different way. And at first, there was a little bit of resistance from different communities. I remember YouTube at their New Friends presentation when they talked to brands once a year about what is on their slate and what um, content they have coming up. For the last few years, it's been really celebrity heavy. That presentation has been much more weighted towards traditional celebrity rather than their YouTube native creator community. And um, especially when Will Smith popped up, I saw a lot of conversation from YouTube natives about like, oh, here we go again. Here's YouTube yet again, kind of neglecting to provide the love and engagement directly with their own creators and just glomming onto the fact that Will Smith, a celebrity, is now on their platform. And I think that was really fair feedback because YouTube is largely powered by their native creators. And it feels like sometimes they um, don't always honor that connection. And some of that, some of those feelings came to a head in the YouTube Creator Rewind controversy. 
controversy. Yeah. 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 Rewind is always a, a head scratcher. Um, I would love to see the power of making Rewind actually put in the hands of YouTube creators because oftentimes it seems like it's missing the mark. But uh, back to Will, I feel like what he has done in the last year is really proven that he's not anything but 100% committed to creating content that works for each specific platform. I have had the opportunity to work directly with him and his team, and um, you know they they're they're the real deal. They've hired um, the right people for each platform. They're working with some amazing digital creators: Caleb Natale, Lawrence uh, Becker. God, that name, the last name was escaping me. Um, Sampler Times, uh, but really working with some of the smaller digital creators on each platform, but who have a lot of skills to make sure that um, Will's content is really special. And I think that he's a great example of somebody who has put on the approach of, okay, I know that I'm not native to this platform, so I'm going to take my time and understand it and really lean into collaborating with the people who know what works best. And um, that was the, the advice that I had given to YouTube right around the time that Will became active on the platform is guys, the first thing that he needs to do is collaborate with some YouTube creators. And then he had that great moment with Liza and some others. And I think he really showed that he didn't want to be a phony, that he wanted to collaborate in an authentic way. So that's hugely important and um, very different from a lot of celebrities who, if you peel back the 40 million followers that some of them have, you'll see that uh, on the back end, 50% of them are bots and the other 50% are the people who likely got a suggestion when they signed up on the platform to follow the celebrity and they hit follow, but then they've never really engaged since then. Yeah, and I think celebrities are realizing now that social is not just a way for them to build more of a direct relationship with their fans, but also to monetize in new ways, to stay relevant and be part of the cultural conversation between projects and often to kind of build more of an international following, which is increasingly becoming important for things like you know, international touring if you're a musician or carrying foreign box office if you're a film star. So there's kind of all these reasons why it now complements a traditional career. Totally, but I think that um, a number of them hear that point that you're making and they want to go directly to that. So if you look at some of them, they're either only promoting the things that would drive monetization for them. They're trying to sell their fans their clothing line or their perfume or the tickets for their concerts. And if you don't provide your followers with something that's entertaining and of value to them on a regular basis and then sandwich the great content with the monetization opportunities in between that, um, then you'll quickly uh, feel them turning off. Because yeah. people, in the same way that um, I think one of the reasons that influencer marketing is seeing so much success now, people want to connect with other people and feel like they're actually gaining something from following them. And if uh, a brand is just advertising at people or if celebrities are just advertising at people, it's never going to work. So I want to return to these ideas about celebrities and influencers, but I want to kind of pick up in your story and talk a little bit more about the work that you did after, after working with Ashton Kutcher. You moved over to more of music industry and music talent management, working with Chris Lighty and managing artists like 50 Cent, Busta Rhymes, Mariah Carey. Uh, what motivated you to get into the music management business? 
Um, yeah, so I had worked with Ashton for five years, and I think the second thing after the Twitter race that really impacted me working for Ashton was seeing a lot of brands come to him and say, hey, we have this marketing idea, we want you to be the celebrity in that marketing idea, are you interested? And he would often say to me, like, wow, it just feels like brands really don't get it. They they understand that my celebrity is valuable to them, but they don't think that my ideas are valuable to them, and they're, co- they're sort of speaking at me and telling me what their idea that's already baked is and asking me to plug myself into it instead of asking me what I care about and collaborating with me on an idea. And that really resonated with me and um, is a takeaway that has changed the course of my life really. And so after five years with Ashton, I moved back to New York from LA because I just really wanted to be back in the city that I love the most. And Ashton had a friendship with Puffy, uh, Sean Combs, Diddy, um, whatever he's going by today. And he was managed by Chris Lighty. And so that's how I was introduced to Chris. And if you guys listening don't know who Chris Lighty is, unfortunately, he died by suicide a few years ago. But uh, there's a Spotify series called Mogul that you can listen to to learn more about him. And um, he was quite impactful in bringing the hip hop world together with the branded advertising world. He was really the liaison between a lot of these large corporations and um, the hip hop world and probably most famous for bringing 50 Cent together with vitamin water and um, taking that stock in vitamin water instead of a payment to do his branded advertising with them and then ultimately Coke bought vitamin water and that yielded millions and millions of dollars for 50. So what I learned in working with Chris was just how important it is to set your clients up with um, branded opportunities as opposed to just focusing on their main craft, um, which in his case uh, usually was uh, we were working with musicians. So, you know, musicians were making less and less money from um, their actual songs. And so he created all of these paths uh, to monetization, you know, nail polish for Mariah Carey and energy drinks for 50. And it was really incredible to see him navigate the two different worlds that that meant he needed to succeed in. It also opened my eyes uh, for the first time to the way that black people live in America. Uh, You know, I had never, I was a minority at Violator, the company. I was one of the only white people um, working there. And oftentimes, you know, Chris is like this multi-million dollar successful businessman but we would go outside to catch a cab for a meeting and he would hide behind a building and have me hail the cab and then jump into it a lot of small things like that that added up to a real impact for me understanding the huge difference that black people feel in America as marginalized and and that has also impacted me um, and caused me to make sure to prioritize diversity and inclusion in everything that I do yeah that's amazing was he active in some of that work as well? Was the business focused on, you know, through these uh, musicians and, and the talent partners that you had trying to take a stance or make a change in, in the area of diversity and inclusion? I think really in the world of um, hip hop, I don't think we were there yet. You know, it was like a 2011 and and I think musicians in hip hop have always expressed themselves in whatever they're going through um, in their music, but it was still, uh, you know, a pretty 
interesting space to be in. We we worked behind bulletproof glass, and there were a lot of the artists that were, um, you know, packing heat in meetings, and um, so we weren't quite like as woke as we are now these days. But uh, it was an experience that I will always take with me, and and also just seeing the difference um, in community uh, around social and the way that you know fifty would often go to a club and um, tweet some crazy things out in the middle of the night and seeing how that impacted him and his business decisions during the day was quite different than um, sort of the world of the traditional Hollywood celebrity that I had come up um, through. And then from Violator, I went to work for Tyra Banks, which was really kind of a nice compromise between those two very different worlds because Tyra, of course, has long been an advocate um, and a change maker in the world of diversity and inclusion, body positivity, um, female empowerment. She's just been working on those issues long before they were stylish in um, our society. Uh, So I learned so much from her around how to be a strong woman in a room. Uh, But also, again, back to kind of my early days with Ashton, Tyra is just one of the hardest working people I have ever been around. Um, How did you meet her? So Tyra and Ashton made a funny reality show called True Beauty um, because they were both uh, sort of intrigued by the idea of beautiful people and um, beauty only being skin deep. So it was a reality show about putting some gorgeous people in a house and telling them that they were in a competition for who was the most beautiful person in the world. And um, they, you know, all assumed that it was a beauty competition, but actually then a very punked style way, you know, they'd be like maybe on the way to their challenge for the day and someone would ask for money on the street and there would be hidden cameras really recording what um, these people did in situations that challenged them like that. And so then at the end of every show, uh, the person who would be losing for that week would be put in a, a private room with Ashton and Tyra and they would say, you know, you're kicked off this week because you didn't show kindness and empathy and that's really what we're looking for. That was the true beauty that we were searching for. So um, it didn't go very far, but that's how I had um, met Tyra. And um, What we- a powerful message for a show. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that was uh, Beauty and the Geek as well, which was one of Ashton's shows that was more successful. Um, was really about the the two stereotyped groups and um, how much commonality there actually can be between them. And during your time with Tyra, you were also very much dedicated to helping her grow her social media following. Yes, and that is how I was reunited with Oliver Luckett, who I had um, met once before with Ashton, but. Tyra had started working with Oliver and a company called The Audience that was founded by Oliver and Ari Emanuel from uh, William Morris Endeavor and um, Sean Parker from uh, Facebook originally. And they had created an agency that, you know, I'm going to say it's the first ever influencer agency. I don't know if anybody else out there would say differently, but that's that's where I think it all shakes out at this point in, in history. And they originally created this agency to manage the social pages of Ari's uh, celebrity clients and what they found was that 
there was not much of a business model there um, because it was so much time and effort and so many staff required to actually handle the publishing requirements for um, that talent list. So we pivoted after about a year to working with brands. And I say we because I ended up going uh, to join the audience, but that is how I started uh, working with them is that we had brought them on board when I was at Tyra's to help grow all of her social followings. That was also right when Vine launched, and um, I just will always have fond memories of making Vines with Tyra. Um, she was, uh, like Ashton, an early adopter in all things and really wanted to be at the forefront of that platform. I don't know if you saw that uh, this past weekend at the TikTok Black Creator Summit that she was one of the speakers, but not a surprise at all to see her yet again and partnering up really closely with a new platform. What is your take on TikTok? <laughs> what is your take on TikTok? Uh, I am close with some people there. I'm, first of all, personally, I'm just really happy when I can um, find 10 or 15 minutes to watch TikTok myself and it often turns into 30 minutes and I ask myself <laughs> like oh my god did I just spend 30 minutes watching TikTok but much like Vine it's that short snackable content that you find yourself even if you only have five minutes for you're like wow I've watched 30 different creators make something because it's so short and I've you know maybe learned something I've also laughed a few times I've been surprised and delighted so I love the emotion that it can bring about. I'm also super happy um, to see that Kudzi is over there as the head of creators because thank God he's black. Thank God he's prioritizing traditionally underrepresented voices on this entertainment platform. And I think it's it's just fantastic to see that kind of almost over rotation, knowing that many tech platforms are geared towards um, really helping white creators succeed more than uh, creators of color. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about Vine. You know, you spent some time at Twitter leading the Vine initiatives. What was that experience like and, and what ultimately, you know, led to the decline of Vine? So after um, I was at the audience and we started including uh, digital creators in our brand work, um, and that was really the first time that I put all three ingredients together, brands and traditional celebrities and digital creators, which for me now is the, the magic triangle. Um, and what I'm most interested in making sure there are opportunities for all three of those groups to work um, collaboratively together. So from the audience, I went to Vine and that was at a time right when Instagram video had just launched. And so Vine was seeing some real competition for the first time. And I think as we all know um, in the articles that have covered this, Vine was not ever monetized. Vine never had a way to profit and make money. So the entire time that it was uh, an active company, it was being bankrolled by Twitter. And that inherently is a problem, I think, as we entered the fourth year uh, to, to have a company really draining a lot of resources from its parent company but not making money. I think ultimately that's kind of the short answer um, around why it didn't work. It's a super complex story with a number of dramatic chapters in it, and I keep talking on my Twitter about making a documentary about it. And I really, like, if you work at Netflix, get at me because I think that documentary needs to be made and it just hasn't yet. And it's especially relevant right now with the closing of HQ and one of the Vine founders being involved in that. So it's just um, really remarkable to see, I think, time and time again, tech founders who have great ideas, not necessarily 
giving birth to those ideas and then bringing in operationalized staff to actually run the company. So oftentimes it feels like um, an inventor creates an idea but then just can't let it go and they are not actually the person um, that should be in charge of running the company. It's a very different skill set that takes something from zero to one then one to ten and ten and beyond, right? So yeah. something to be said for bringing in those complementary skill sets and focusing on your sweet spot so that the, the business can flourish. Yeah. yeah. I'd say my, my major takeaway at Vine was, you know, when I got there, um, the company had largely had a policy um, created by the founders to not interact with creators at all. And the thought was that Vine was going to be the democratization of video. And I think an early idea was that Vine would be almost a replacement for texting. So instead of you texting your girlfriend, hey, I'm out walking the dog, you would just instead send her a Vine of you walking the dog. And so when Vine stars started to be created and these people became famous on the platform and essentially became the, the power holders on the platform, there was something that didn't sit right with the founders about that. And so when I arrived, there were no founders there any longer. And it, it was like a very fast mandate you are the creator person, figure out how we can have relationships with creators as quickly as possible. And it was just, you know, honestly, it was a lot for me to understand that they had never spoken with these people. So I started out immediately. Um, well, one of the first things that I did was hire Chris Melberger, who was a Viner at the time. And I had um, gone to Playlist my first week working at Vine. And he had found out that I worked at Vine and kind of just talked my ear off for three hours about everything that we should be doing differently. And I said, can you come work for me? Because <laughs> um, you're going to help me um, get up to speed really quickly. So he did. And he not only suggested a lot of features from the creator point of view, which was so important because the engineers were working away and building things in this vacuum, assuming that they knew what the creators wanted. Um, and Chris really brought in that creator feedback loop that we needed. But he also was so helpful in kind of laying out the community politics for me and saying, like, if you have a Vine event, you cannot invite this group and this group, and you can't put them in the same room together. And those types of things I never would have known um, had I not worked with somebody on the inside. But I started reaching out to the top creators on the platform, like King Batch at the time was the number one um, creator. And it was so funny, the um, first time that I spoke to him as well as a number of the other top creators, they, they made me go through all this process of like actually verifying my identity with them and verifying that I worked at Vine because they were so shocked that somebody who worked at Vine was actually speaking to them. Wow. They thought that it so couldn't how did be you real. You know, like sending them my LinkedIn and sending them my my email address so they knew that it was a Twitter email address and all these things. And um, when I finally got to sit down and speak to King Batch about his frustrations around sending multiple emails to, you know, help at vine.co saying, I'm King Batch, I'm your number one creator, I'm having this problem, can you please help me? And never having been contacted, he said, I thought they just hated black people. And I said, no, no, they just weren't talking to anybody. Wow. It wasn't a racial thing, it was a creator thing. Sure. So, you know, I built a global talent strategy and worked as quickly as I could to connect a lot of the creators with each other and to connect them with opportunities through the platform. But I think ultimately it was too late the top creators, the people who lived at 1600 Vine, the most popular ones, they had already been signed by agents and managers. They were already making a ton of money on other platforms. Exactly. And they, they ended up using it as a springboard to get into YouTube, to get into Instagram. And it was you know, such a new platform that you could get discovered and build audience quickly, but then it helped you transition to 
other places where you could monetize. Absolutely. I'm fascinated by this idea that the Vine founders originally conceived of it as a messaging platform because it, in my mind, it draws this really interesting parallel to Snapchat, right? That Snapchat really seems like more of a messaging service. It's multimedia, it's interactive, rather than a true creator platform. And I feel like they've kind of had this identity crisis too of do we embrace creators, do we embrace publishers, brands, and traditional media, or do we lean into the fact that this is the cool, hip, young messaging service? Yeah, and it is interesting. I spoke to Snapchat soon after Vine closed and said, you know, please let us be a cautionary tale. Please develop relationships with your creators. I'm hearing from the creators that I know that all they want is a Snapchat hoodie and a visit to your office and your closed door policy is going to harm you in the end. And I think, you know, more than anything, I want every tech platform to understand if you're working with creators, you need to develop relationships with them. I know the inclination um, for every tech company is really how to scale quite quickly. And the the answer that um, is hard to hear around creators is that it's not that scalable. It's a human-human connection. It's relationship building. You know, YouTube has a huge creator team, and I think they still sometimes feel like they don't have the relationships that they'd like to have. It's a difficult thing to get your hands around, but it's super important. And if the creators don't feel a personal connection with someone at your platform, then there will likely be trouble up ahead. And again, back to um, Kudzi at TikTok. That's why I think he's already hit the ground running and, and was laying such a great foundation at Musical.ly and feels like TikTok creators really have that connection to a human being at the platform that's so important. So do you think Snapchat has staying power or should they have taken the $3 billion Facebook acquisition or the $30 billion Google acquisition? <laughs> it's such a... Um, Sort of it's a bit di- of a loaded question. Yeah, it's I a realize. difficult. It's a difficult <laughs> thing to publicly have an opinion about a platform when I'm working for a company that needs to have positive relationships with all platforms. But I will say that um, for me, the platforms that I open every day are Twitter and um, Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, and for me, I don't know. I don't think of it as necessarily a criticism of Snapchat as a creator platform. I just don't think of it that way. Right. I think of it as a great tool for publishers. Right. I think they've got a huge head start for AR VR, and they could be, you know, they could be better than WhatsApp or WeChat in that space if they chose to be. They've just kind of divided their focus over so many years, trying to do spectacles, trying to do, you know, some creator stuff, some messaging stuff that they haven't been able to have a clear win in any direction. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point is, first of all, a lot of companies are having to pivot on a yearly basis because this is a new space. None of us really know what the answers are, and everyone's just trying to follow the right business model that works for them. It's possible that Snapchat shouldn't be a creator platform. It's possible that Vine shouldn't have been a creator platform, but when we looked at the data at Vine, we saw that about 80% of our users were consumers and not creators. And so I think understanding that one, Um, Content creation is hard. It's not something that everybody can do. If you work at a tech platform and you're asking yourself, how can we make sure that every single user is making content? I'm not sure that that's the right question. You can't um, force our country to become a a country of content creators. It's not, I don't think it's going to happen. And, And also I think there's a marginalization of the understanding of what it takes to make content if you're asking that question. And, and that is really the, the, issue that I've seen a lot of companies come up against is 
not respecting content creators in the way that they should, not understanding that what they do actually takes a, a wide array of skills and talent. And, you know, still I am waiting for the day that Hollywood and other industries legitimize content creators and influencers, whatever you want to call them, instead of feeling like it is low hanging fruit to um, make fun of them. So let's talk about that. What attracted you to the influencer marketing space leading into your most recent role as director of talent partnerships at Target and now your current job as SVP partnerships for Whaler? Well, it was really at Vine. Like I say, when I got involved in that community and I started hanging out with Viners, some of them, you know, were still in high school or just out of high school, but I was so impressed with the amount of data and insights that lived in their brains. They always knew what their numbers were. They always knew what their highest viewed content was, what their lowest viewed content was. They could tell you what works and what doesn't work. They live, eat, sleep, and breathe on the internet. And for me, there just seemed to be such a disconnect between this group of people who were often, again, like kind of laughed at, marginalized. I mean, Google negative articles about influencers, and you can find so many of them. Everybody likes to um, sort of of summarize what content creators do as like posting a bikini picture and making a million dollars off of it. It's just not the case at all. So I developed such an immense respect and understanding of um, the world in which they live. And then on the flip side, knew that in the world of agencies, there were 30 and 40 year olds sitting in rooms telling brands that they knew how to build their social strategies, but these were not the people who lived on the internet. These were not the people who had that deep native first person understanding that content creators did. And so I saw a real opportunity again, like going back to that insight that Ashton had about why aren't brands asking me what I care about instead of telling me that I need to be their ambassador for something that I don't care about. There's this really magical space when brands come together with content creators and traditional celebrities and want to hear from them and want to collaborate and build um, strategies with them that resonate with the audiences that those um, creators have already developed. And I'm really passionate about, first of all, putting money in the pockets of creators, supporting artists and content creators in the way that I feel they should be. But also, you know, when brands actually collaborate with them, I've seen the results, especially at Target. I've seen how quickly we can push the needle and create change um, in the worlds of digital marketing for big brands when they collaborate in the right way with creators. So I'm um, super excited to work at Whaler. They came in and, you know, I have been speaking to the leadership at Target for a year and then uh, to the leadership at AT&T before that with all of these statistics, like really trying to explain in a room like, okay, Yes, younger people connect with influencers. They feel that influencers know them better than their family and friends. They really do trust these people. They want to take advice from them. Yes, this works. I know that you doubt it, but this is just new power versus old power. Please trust me. Please believe me. Let's do this. And had been spending all of this time kind of having those types of conversations. And then Whaler came in to pitch me at Target, and they were speaking my language. Like, usually when, when influencer agencies come in to 
pitch me, I'm just kind of like, here we go. I'm going to kind of have to politely tell them that they're garbage. Um, <laughs> but Whaler came in and started saying all of the same things that I'm always saying. I mean, their tagline is to liberate the creative voice, and it's all about putting a lot of the power and control in the creator's hands. And then also they had conducted the world's first ever neurological influencer study where they um, showed people influencer content and they showed people television ads and they monitored their brain waves and brain signals and when um, someone who you already follow and feel an affinity for is telling you about a brand or a product versus just seeing an advertisement on television so 277 percent more emotionally intense and 87 percent more memorable and it just comes down to emotion over promotion And um, we know that creativity and emotion drive memory and that memory drives recall and recall drives sales. And so to see that a company had really taken it upon themselves to do their own research around um, how much more effective creator marketing can be than traditional advertising just spoke to me. And it's exactly what I'm passionate about and want to really dig into and bring that message to as many brands as I can. What are the biggest challenges facing the influencer marketing industry today? Again, I think because we're in this transitional time where people who don't necessarily have a fluency in the industry, they hear these weird clickbaity articles about, you know, like, well, okay, just because Jake Paul may be a terrible influencer doesn't mean that the entire community is terrible. And just like you wouldn't judge a soap opera actor, um, you wouldn't judge all actors based on this one person in the acting community. So I, I think there's this real struggle for the advertising industry, for brands, for Hollywood, for a lot of these more traditional, old school media consumption worlds to really understand that they've got to pivot and evolve pretty quickly to catch up with what's going to work and what's going to resonate with their audiences. And so we're just like living in that gray time that can feel really sluggish right now as people start to slowly understand that they've got to adapt and adjust. But even since I've been in the industry, you know, I remember when Ashton was working on a film and he would tweet about it and send out pictures on the set and all of these film executives showed up one day from the studio and said, Ashton, you can't tweet about this movie. You absolutely can't talk about this movie on social. Um, So we've gone from that world to now it's in the contracts for actors to give sneak peeks. And I think now I've heard from actors that even when they audition, they sign in for their audition and then they have to list all of the amount of followers that they have on every platform. So I think Hollywood is now casting through that lens of social influence rather than being scared of it. And it's a sign that we are transitioning. We're all transitioning. But I think the pain points come around living in that world and having to complete brand deals when you've just been given a brief, again, that says, like, hold this product and say this thing, which is not the way to approach it. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the digital media space, what would they be? First and foremost, um, power in the hands of the creator. The cr- lean into creators for what needs to be um, made on digital and social. Stop letting your old school agencies dictate to them what to do. Secondly, I would say gender parity and diversity and inclusion. Super important. I've 
been in so many boardrooms filled with white people wondering, like, how do we market to people of color? How do we market to Latinx audiences? Like, well, the first thing you need to do is put some people of color and put some Latinx people in your boardrooms so that they can be decision makers in that process and they can have seats at that table. Definitely, if you are someone in a position to make decisions in the influencer space, make sure that the cast you're working with is inclusive and represents um, the LGBTQ community. Make sure that you're at gender parity. Make sure that you are representing a lot of different perspectives and voices. And I'm not just talking about tokenism, but truly, again, like hire a diverse group of people and then ask them for their own personal stories. And uh, third, I would say what I'm really interested in is um, new platforms and new ways of communicating and how video and particularly short video will continue to be the thing by which we're all measuring impact. Are there new platforms you're keeping an eye on, like Caffeine or Firework? Anything that jumps out? Well, um, my Vine community would definitely want me to say um, that they're all on bite right now. Of so yeah. um, that'll be interesting to see um, how that develops. And for me, I'm, again, super interested in what will happen with TikTok and brands, especially as um, you know, there continue to be conversations around how brands, especially larger brands with giant legal teams who have concerns around brand safety, um, navigate the world of TikTok. And I think the way to do that is if you can't get your brand directly on TikTok, you can work through TikTok creators. What does the future hold for you and for Whaler? Um, well, I've just started this new job. I'm so excited about it and um, building out the West Coast presence. They've got uh, big offices in New York and London. So really connecting the global business and making sure that we've got representation on the West Coast, both from a creator perspective as well as a brand perspective. Uh, bringing the creators that I've worked with in the past uh, into the company as well as some of the brands. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? So for me personally, the one thing that um, I feel like, you know, if I got hit by a bus today, I hope somebody would point out at my funeral that I feel like I have cracked how to properly make a live stream quite successful. And I have not seen a lot of people do that. I have an eight-part strategy um, that is pretty crucial to include all eight steps. And it's quite complex. And yet for Target and AT&T, it's driven millions and millions of views. So um, what I hope is that that will be one of the things that I'm able to work on in the future, because there is nothing more exciting than being able to combine those three things that I love, brands, traditional celebrities, and digital creators into this big live production moment and then seeing millions and millions of people watching it um, in real time and commenting and just kind of feeling that rush of connectivity that even though I'm sitting in Los Angeles with you, I'm seeing comments from people in India and we're all watching and enjoying the same thing and feeling um, really connected as a people. Terrific. Karen, where can people find out more about you and more about Whaler? I am at Karen Spencer on Instagram and Twitter, and my name is K-A-R-Y-N because my mom had to make my life difficult. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> and um, and Whaler is W-H-A-L-A-R, and you can just Google it and find us. We're on every platform, and um, feel free to DM me. Reach out. Follow. Let's um, chat. Well, Karen, thank you so much. It's fascinating to hear about your journey from traditional entertainment to working with celebrities, combining that with influencers and the branded content world. 
helping bring that magic triangle together and, and finding ways to create success through digital content. Really cool to hear your perspective and your story. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.